Hello, everybody. My name is Nick Cohen, and welcome to The Bunker. In 2007, the then Labour government, probably unwittingly, unleashed one of the biggest social changes in contemporary British history by liberalising gambling. Since then, the industry has exploded. Millions of people, probably, are just enjoying themselves. Countless thousands have become addicts. Lives have been ruined. Lives have been lost. The gambling industry has suborned our politics, corrupted politics, paying for political representation, and is now one of the most fancied industries by stock pickers anywhere as it prepares to move on from Britain to conquer America. A very timely book, Jackpot, How Gambling Conquered Britain by Rob Davis, is out now. It describes what happened, why it happened, and what can be done about it. I'm delighted to say that Rob is joining us now. Hello, thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on, Rob, and welcome to The Bunker. I started with Tessa Jowell, Tony Blair, 2005-2007. Can you explain what was happening to gambling before then and what they did? So, obviously, gambling existed decades centuries, millennia before 2005. But as we came up to that period, there was a clear recognition that the regulation wasn't really fit for purpose in a world where technology was changing things very rapidly, companies had gone offshore, and there was a need to create a legal framework to govern gambling. Now, the way that that happened was, to my mind, sort of of a piece with the Blairite ethos. I mean, it was Peter Mandelson who said, I think I'm intensely relaxed about people getting filthy rich as long as they pay their taxes. The idea was that you could foster this money-spinning industry. It would contribute to the economy. It would pay its taxes. And as long as it did that, you didn't need to worry too much about whether it was properly regulated. I mean, I don't you, think they would... You make, you make a very nice comparison with how they let the banks run themselves in that period. Yeah, absolutely. It's the idea of light-touch regulation, right? And I'm sure at the time they would have said that the regulations they put in place on gambling were not light-touch, but in retrospect, that's exactly what they proved to be. And they sort of went hell for leather for putting the UK at the forefront of the gambling industry globally. And if you remember at the time, all the fuss in the papers, particularly the Daily Mail, was about super casinos and where we're going to have super casinos in Blackpool and Manchester and various other places. And there were plans for seven. And then that got whittled down to, to one in the, in the parliamentary back and forth with Michael Howard's Conservative Party and then eventually none. And all the time what was happening was that people were not really cognizant of the risks presented by internet gambling. And that's partly bad luck. You know, this law was written in 2005, came into effect in 2007. In between those two dates, in 2006, the iPhone was invented. So, you you know, you could argue that, that is a, a piece of very unfortunate timing, because what that means is from then on, pretty much everybody has a casino in their pocket 24-7. You know, the idea of a super casino sounds slightly quaint when you when you consider that. Yeah. Old Hollywood movies, not the reality of gambling today. I remember being on the New Statesman at the time and writing a cover piece about how extraordinary it was as a Labour Party that owed more to Methodism than Marxism that was informed by the non-conformist conscience could let gambling rip. Was there, at the time, enough care taken about the casualties from this process? No, I don't think there was. I mean, you know, you can argue about whether or not the industry was properly regulated in terms of the kind of products they were allowed to offer and and how they had to behave and all the rest of it. And people will draw the line in different places depending on their views on, you know, civil liberties and, and the balance between those and protecting people. But in terms of putting in place measures to chart how people were being affected, i.e. good longitudinal studies to to look at 
gambling addiction and to look at social harm in terms of putting in place that safety net to make sure that the people who did suffer didn't fall through the cracks and were able to access treatment easily and were aware of that treatment. I mean, I think those were two of the biggest failings, really. And we've only started to really get to grips with those in the last few years. It's only now that NHS gambling clinics are being rolled out. And I think if you talk to somebody about gambling addiction five, six, seven years ago, I mean, it wasn't really thought about it wasn't really very well known everyone knew obviously about alcohol tobacco addiction you know and i'm i'm not playing down those at all but something about gambling just meant that it didn't really make headline news until relatively recently yeah and also rob it's not just knowledge it's legislation you've got hard drugs that are prohibited even when the harm they cause like ecstasy, is is very low you've got alcohol which is regulated you've got smoking which is again regulated by law and has massive massive social taboos around it now and then you've got gambling is it fair to say that gambling is the least regulated and gambling addicts problem gamblers are the least protected people i mean that's a tough one because gambling is such a wide marketplace there's so many different types of products right you've got sports betting and casinos and slot machines and spread betting all that kind of stuff going on and there are lots of very very detailed regulations governing each one of those right down to the kind of granular detail of how games are designed and, and things like that whereas you look at something like smoking i mean that is it's not banned but you know it's effectively prohibited in all but you know, you have to really go looking for cigarettes to find them. So I don't think it's very easy to compare the two. But I think the difference is that with gambling, it's been very heavily promoted. And in fact, the gambling regulator in its remit, in its, I think it's a a charter, it has an aim to permit gambling. They err on the side of caution when it comes to regulating. Oh, I see. So there's no one in the health service or the police with the aim of permitting drinking or permitting smoking or permitting drug taking and encouraging it. It's still seen then in law as a business for UK PLC that we need to promote. Yeah, like any other ledger activity is the idea. I mean, that was certainly the kind of Tessa Jowell idea when they were putting together the legislation. And, you know, and there's some logic to it. Why should anybody be stopped from taking part in gambling, which lots of people enjoy and, and, you know, lots of them do so harmlessly? The question was whether once you had kind of unleashed the beast, if you like, once you'd taken the shackles off, what was going to be put in place to make sure that where there was clearly wrong behavior, clearly exploitative behavior, that it was going to get punished. And for a long time, there was almost nothing. It was only in 2014 that a company offering gambling services in the UK had to have a license from the British Gambling Commission. Before that, they could have a Gibraltar Gambling Commission license or, you know, one of any other jurisdictions. And the thing about those places is, you know, these are tiny economies that are incredibly reliant on the gambling industry, which provides all of their high earners, their jobs, their taxes, yeah. you know, and you're asking those people to take a firm line with the gambling industry, which is, you know, frankly ludicrous. Is the scare story of the first decade of the century that if we don't let gambling rip, it will just go offshore and there'll be nothing the British government can do about it? Was that true? Or could we, in fact, be tougher if we wanted to be without the whole industry going offshore? I mean, the thing that the industry will tell you is that if we now tighten up, the black market will explode in a big way. And I don't think that's a paper tiger, right? I do think the black market is a risk. There are black market sites out there. And I know that from bitter personal experience, because one of them posts articles claiming to be from a journalist called Rob Davies talking about these great sites where you can avoid... um, Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's uh, (laughs) it's not much I can seem to be able to do about it. But, you know, the, the, the black market does exist, right? Right. But the question is, do you put in place measures to make sure that the Gambling Commission and others who are responsible for tackling those black market operators are better funded so that they can deal with it? And you also have to ask whether the threat of the black market is being exaggerated by 
by those who stand to, to lose out from tighter gambling regulation. And I would contend that it is. And I've spoken to people in the gambling industry who say that it is being exaggerated. I mean, if you're a gambler and you're told, let's say tomorrow they change the law so that it's more difficult to gamble in the UK and you're restricted to a certain amount per bet or, or betting a certain amount per month, which is the kind of thing that could happen. Are you then going to go and entrust your credit card details to some people who are essentially criminals because you're so desperate to bet slightly more than that. Some people might. I think that's undoubtedly the case. But we can deal with that. And I think most people, by and large, would not because it doesn't make sense. One point and one reason why your book is so timely is that there's a paucity of research and you make this point in your book. But can you put a rough figure on how many people are gambling addicts and for how many people make a comparison with people who aren't quite alcoholics but are very heavy drinkers how many people it's gone beyond a bit of fun a bit of a flutter it's something more serious that damages them their family their lives i mean this is notoriously difficult to do right and one of the points that i raise in the book is that statistics we have aren't necessarily the most robust i mean there's something called the problem gambling severity index pgsi where they ask you a bunch of questions about your gambling and if you score eight or above then you are deemed this phrase a problem gambler it's a phrase i don't much like i have used it in the past some people think that it's stigmatizing of the gamblers themselves rather than talking about a problem industry or a problem product and i think there's there's merit well, in that. something argument. in that, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. But that is the phrase that sometimes gets used in clinical circles, so it, it does have utility. But the numbers on that, according to the NHS Health Survey, sort of range anywhere between about 300,000 and about 450,000. Now, there was a YouGov survey that was done a couple of years ago that sent shockwaves through the industry and you know those legislating and, and campaigning, which suggested that the figure might actually be much higher. It might be more than a million. I think 1.4 million off the top of my head is the number they came up with. And there's been a suggesting that the truth is probably somewhere in between. But underneath that, you've got a sort of substratum of people who are deemed to be at risk of problem gambling or gambling addiction. And one of the problems is that these measurements don't really take into account that gambling addiction can be very episodic. So if you sit me down and do a questionnaire about my gambling today, it might be that I don't show up as an addict. But in six months' time, you know, I go back, I have a bad night on the slots, I'm chasing my losses, I lose a huge amount of money, and I can essentially, you know, plunge my family into financial ruin overnight, that might not show up in those figures. The other thing to remember is that depending on which studies you read, for every person who is a gambling addict, another six people are affected by that. So that could be spouses, children, it could be employers who've been stolen from, all sorts of people. So, you know, very quickly, you're talking about quite large numbers of people who are experiencing harm as a result of gambling addiction. Is it fair to say that one group of people who do know who the problem gamblers are is the gambling industry? Because it's all online. They can see how much you're betting. They can see how much you're losing. They should be able to say or forced to say, well, hold on a second, Nick Cohen. You've already lost 800 quid this week. That's enough. We're not letting you bet again. Yeah, and they are absolutely supposed to do that already. Right, The regulations are in place that say if you spot someone showing patterns of problem gambling, you're supposed to intervene. The question is how well they do that. I mean, in recent years, standards have improved somewhat. I would argue that that's partly about self-preservation rather than altruism, because they knew that that a gambling review by the government was coming down the line. But I mean, even in this era of so-called improved standards, just yesterday, 
I wrote a story about a fine imposed by the Gambling Commission on 888 Casino, which is in the process of buying William Hill. And they weren't doing any checks on anybody until they deposited £40,000. We're talking about nearly twice the national average salary there. Jesus you know, they, Christ. They sorry, set, sorry. They would only start looking at someone if they put 40... Is that, that put £40,000 at... Pounds into their in account. It. That's not that they've necessarily lost it, but it's until they've... Yeah, right, exactly. You know, there was one person who was an NHS worker who earned £1,400 a month, and they had set a deposit cap of £1,300 a month for that person. Good so God. this is in the era where they're supposedly being responsible. And if you go back, you know, a little way, you'll find incredible horror stories of people with nothing being allowed to ruin themselves, essentially, and not just and their families. Ruin, and their as families. you say, their families and the people around them. The, Absolutely. Those, those six people they, they carry with them. Yeah. yeah. And what makes it so different to alcohol and drug addiction, I'm not saying it's worse at all, it's different, is that that can be going on without the knowledge of you know that person's loved ones. You could be sitting on the sofa of an evening, you know, gambling away your children's inheritance or the university fund or whatever it might be, sitting right next to your spouse who doesn't know about it. And I've spoken to people who have been in that situation. Friends of mine, Rob, women I know, have suddenly found their husband has just gambled everything away. Yeah, and the first they know of it is when the bailiffs come around, or in the worst case, is the police. I mean, I spoke to the wife of a man who was imprisoned for committing a fraud against his employer, and she was left... I think she was pregnant at the time he went to prison. She already had one child, you know, and so she was left in this awful situation in financial difficulty, having to raise two kids. You know, one of them had, had never met their father and only, only knew him as a, a voice over the phone. You know, and I think what some in the industry would say, you know, these are the extreme cases. This is, you know, these are isolated incidents. Well, you know, I've spoken to so many people now that it, it doesn't feel that way to me. And also, Rob, and this applies to alcohol and cigarettes too, the industry makes its money from the addicts. They say, look at these middle class liberals wanting to stop someone having a flutter on the Grand National. It's not people having a flutter on the Grand National that they make their money from. I mean, it depends to an extent on the firm, if we're really getting into the nitty gritty of it. There are okay. some firms that do Name slightly... and shame, Rob. Name and shame. Well, I was going to be complimentary, actually, about a company that most people aren't probably that, that fond of, which is Bet365. I mean, for instance, they tend to do quite well out of large volumes of people betting quite small amounts on football. There are companies who make huge amounts of money off the back of having what's known as VIP customers. I did a Freedom of Information request based on a tip-off I'd had about a report that the Gambling Commission held. And this report charted how dependent firms were on VIPs. And we'll get on to what VIPs are in a moment. No, let's, let, let's deal with that now, because VIPs, I mean, one thing, I've read it on Twitter before, lots of gambling online is just the house always wins. It is capitalism at its most extreme in that it is absolutely impossible for the customer to win in the long run. But some elements of skill in, say, betting on horses, betting on football matches, but if you do too well... Then what happens to you? You are blacked or the amount you can bet is restricted? Yeah, it's called stake factoring. So, you know, when you set up an account, you might be given a stake factor of one, i.e. on that particular market, that particular horse race, they will always have a kind of a maximum amount someone can bet and you will be allowed to bet 100% of that. If you start regularly beating their prices, i.e., you know, you're making bets at odds that are more favourable than the odds they eventually end up with when they start the race. If you show you can beat their price, if you show you can regularly win, you'll be dialed down. Your stake factor will be taken down to 0.75, 0.5, 0.3. Now, some of that is for legitimate reasons. They can spot people who are cheating, for instance. They can spot, you know, the stable hand who knows that a horse has gone lame or, or whatever it might be, and they don't want those people betting. That's fair enough. But actually, people who are, you know, who are just good at spotting a price, people who are good at reading the form or whatever it might be, they're getting caught up in that net too. So sure, the house always wins and we assume that because the house has an edge in terms of you know having really good data and all the rest of it. But the house also always wins because if you win, 
They just stop you playing. Exactly. And so you're, you're not a VIP if you're good at gambling. You're a VIP what if you lose loads of money? Yeah, exactly. What typically will happen is that you gamble regularly, you lose quite a large amount of money, and you'll get an invitation to join the VIP scheme. You might even get your own VIP manager who's someone who will stay in contact with you, send you text messages, WhatsApps, emails, even call you up and take you out to hospitality, to football matches, all the rest of it. People get huge amounts of hospitality lavished on them when they can be relied upon to lose thousands of pounds. And at the extreme end, you know, I've spoken to kind of high rollers who you know lost hundreds of thousands, millions of pounds, sometimes money they'd stolen through fraud, and were getting flown around the world to football matches and boxing matches. But at the other end, you're talking about people who are, you know, gambling away sort of relatively small amounts of disposable income that they have, or often income that isn't actually disposable, comes from a source that they need, and they're being made a VIP they're being given cash back on bets or bonuses and stuff like that. And you know, the idea that you're a VIP is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, there's a phrase there's a phrase in the yeah, there's a phrase in the industry which is a mug punter, and that's someone you know can be relied upon to make bad bets and lose money. I mean, a mug punter and a VIP are the same thing. I understand from personal experience, and I guess quite a few listeners will understand how you can get hooked on alcohol or drugs or nicotine. Can you explain why gambling is an addiction? Because, you know, there's no drug involved, there's no stimulant involved, there's no dependency. What makes gambling addictive? I mean, I should say some of this is disputed, and I'm not, you know, a a psychologist or a medical expert, but there do seem to be people for whom the kind of dopamine rush of, of putting your money at risk is irresistible and they keep coming back to it time and time again because you know there are sort of chemical reactions going on in the brain for people for whom you know gambling is addictive and even though you don't develop a physical dependency in the way that people do with drugs and alcohol it creates that need to go back and to experience more and I mean, there's a very good book, which is extremely long and, and complicated and detailed by a woman called Natasha Dow Shulam. Addiction by Design, that's what it's called. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. Yeah, well, she, she sort of studied Las Vegas and the slot machines there, and she talked to people about their experience with them. And, and people talked of being in the zone, you know, this kind of trance-like state of calm where they're sort of sitting there playing a slot machine and nothing else can affect them and it's it's like an intoxication yes you're very you're very good at describing the psychological tricks of how the gambling conglomerates manipulate our unconscious biases for instance i'm sure listeners will have walked past betting shops with ads like these or maybe even taken some bets like these you'll see a bet that if manchester united beat Burnley 3-1 and Marcus Rashford scores the first goal we'll give you odds of 15 to 1 on that happening and you think great but as you explained that's not really a great bet yeah right one of the sort of things that gambling companies know about the way our brains work is that people are incredibly bad at calculating the probability of multiple events happening we're not too bad at guessing the chances of one event happening like that Manchester United to win that game right which is a kind of bet that people used to put on, you know, more often back in the days of the bookmaker and the beaded curtain. These days, the bets tend to be more complicated. The kind of bet you described, United to win 3-1 against Burnley and Marcus Rashford to score, that's called a scorecast bet. You also get the accumulators where you have you know, multiple events all, all have to happen at the same time. And they can offer what look like some pretty long odds. So you think it's a good deal, especially with the scorecast bet, because there's something at play there called the representativeness heuristic, where you go into your mind and you think about, oh, Marcus Rashford scoring the first goal in a 3-1 win against Burnley. I've seen that kind of thing happen. You know, it's representative of my yeah. experience. 
But in actual fact, the odds of that are much, much longer. So they're always going to direct you towards those kind of bets rather than the kind of simple sorts of bets where their edge over you isn't quite so great. And there's nothing in law, there's no kind of regulator to say, I mean, to go back to your example, Manchester United winning 3-1 against Burnley, Rashford scoring the first goal. The odds could probably be, you know, suppose the real odds of that are 45 to 1 or 90 to 1. There's no regulator to say, hold on a second, this is a strip pair. No, and look, I'm not necessarily sure that there should be. Right. I mean, you know, that's sort of what betting is. You're, you know, you pay your money and you put it at risk. And, you know, it's sort of up to you to realize that. But what I've tried to do in those parts of the book is to illustrate, you know, how people can be aware of the sort of psychological traits that we have. I was going to say weaknesses, but I think that's unfair. The psychological traits that we all have that are being exploited here. You know, because another thing that makes gambling addiction different from alcohol and, and, and drug addiction is that products can be tweaked i suppose you could argue this about drugs as well but products can be tweaked on the fly to make them more addictive they're designed to be that way they're designed to be appealing they're designed to you know tap into those psychological traits that we all have and and there are really clever ways of doing that through the way that that, for instance slot machine games look on the screen and the kind of music they play i mean one Mm. one of the other psychological tricks i found so interesting is on slot machine games for a long time, you could put in a pound and the, you know, the wheels will spin. And if you don't lose the entire pound, sometimes you'd be told that you've had, let's say, a 20p win. So you've actually lost 80p, but on one of the lines of the slot machine, you've won 20p. And it'll play a little happy tune saying you've won 20p. Now, you haven't won anything. You've lost some money. But the little happy tune makes you think that you're doing well. So it's that kind of thing. And, there's, and, and of course, there's no dismal tune when you lose. Well, exactly right. Like you might get in a computer game, for instance, they're not going to put that into a gambling game where they they stand to win money from you. How powerful is the gambling interest in politics? How effective is it? And there's a question mark over how effective it is, because gambling policy isn't being made all the time, right? So we don't have that chain of cause and effect. But they're certainly working very, very hard at it. The gambling lobby, you know, has MPs in, in the contact book, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I wrote a story last year about the, the amount of money that's being spent on hospitality and second jobs for MPs. And I I can't remember the exact numbers. I think it was 28 MPs that either accepted hospitality or second jobs from the gambling industry in 2020. And that included days out at Euro 2020, at Ascot, at Lords. You had MPs who were standing up in the House to say the gambling industry is being too harshly regulated and then putting on their jacket and going out to see England versus Denmark, courtesy of the owner of of Ladbrokes. I want to end with a why and a what can we do about it. The why is simply this. Most of our listeners are sort of right on, achingly hip liberals. They probably regard drug prohibition as a disaster. They would be appalled if religious conservatives said the state had the right to regulate people's sex lives. With gambling, why should it be regulated more firmly? And what should those regulations be? Well, the question is what creates the most harm right and i think that's why prohibition is not the answer with most things you yeah, talk about course, yeah. you talk about drugs that are completely prohibited we all know about you know alcohol and um, prohibitionism in the us and the effect that that had on crime now you know gambling is is nowhere near that and nobody is suggesting that it will be i mean people like people who campaign for reform and journalists like me get called prohibitionists by the gambling lobby which is kind of a slur that has arisen because they want people to think that that's what anybody is actually suggesting. Nobody is suggesting that. I can talk you through some of the, the things that, that reformers are interested in. Things like tighter affordability checks. So that's um, you know looking at people who have uh, spent a certain amount of money and saying, we need to check whether this person can afford that. And that would involve checks that some people think would be too intrusive. 
bank statements, you know, proof of employment, that kind of thing. Um, so there's, a, there's an argument to be had about that and where is the right level to set those affordability checks if we're going to put them in. There's things like uh, limits on the stakes that you can bet online. I mean, you, you may remember the fixed odds betting terminals row, which was about the digital roulette, roulette machines mm-hmm. in shops, and the stakes on those got restricted from £100 to £2. Now, the logical conclusion is that the same should apply online, but it doesn't. So that's something that might be looked at. Um, a gambling ombudsman would, might be a good idea. That's a, a body that would step in in cases where somebody felt they'd been allowed to lose too much money and could look at whether or not that money could be returned to them or to, or to some third party who manages it. Because at the moment, that's not the Gambling Commission's job. It, it just decides whether the, the gambling company has breached the regulations or not. There are things like you know things that are quite unsexy and, and uh, like the single customer view approach, which is a, this idea that there's a central repository of all gambling customers. And rather than individual companies having to look at whether they're spending more than they can afford, there would be a centralized database so that people couldn't simply be shut down by one gambling company and then go and lose everything with another. So there's loads of stuff like this that's being looked at. I mean, I think funding the regulator a lot better is really important and funding for uh, research, uh, education about gambling and treatment of those who suffer addiction, perhaps via a mandatory levy, which at the moment... Um, a voluntary system is in place. That's another one that that could be looked at. Right. Well, Rob, that is that is fascinating, and one of I think one of uh, uh, speaking as a fellow journalist, one of the ways your book is so well written is you bring in all the granular discussion and make it interesting and alive and uh, and pertinent to the reader. Before we go, I have to do my own mandatory bunker. Ads. The bunker is out every day, Monday to Friday. We do politics, books, culture. There's Oh God, What Now? panel discussion, which is a huge hit. Also up, and I would recommend these very highly, Arthur Snell's Doomsday Watch on on current affairs and world crises, and God knows we'll have enough of those. I think they're absolutely terrific, and I'm not being paid to say that. In fact, I'm barely being paid at all here. If you liked this podcast, please could you give us a five-star rating on your Spotify or Apple or Android app? Maybe give us a nice review as well. There's a Patreon, Patreon, I can never pronounce it, but you can get programs in advance if you pay us a few quid. We do need some money. Programs in advance, goodies, all all kinds of favours. You'd be mad not to do it. Right, I think I'm done with the commercial break. All that remains for me to say is to thank Rob for giving us his time. Rob, where can people get your book? How much is it? Who's publishing it? I mean, all good bookshops, the mediocre ones and some of the bad ones. Guardian Bookshop would be where I'm sure my employers would, would want you to buy it from, but I'm sure you can get it. Oh, from. mine too as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Waterstones and all those other places you can find it. Price sort of depends on, on where you're going. I think the Guardian's doing it at about 11 quid off the top of my head. So that would be uh, probably the best place to start, I would say. All right. And all good bookshops and online stores. Look, Rob, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. Producers were Jacob Archibald, Jana Sofonievich and Alex Rees. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison... Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.